And today and next Sunday, we're focusing on the doctrine of the church. What is the church? Why do we gather? What is our purpose? What's our mission? Those are the things that we're going to be talking about today and next Sunday. Today we're picking up in Acts chapter 2, from verse 36 to the end of the chapter. This is the tail end of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, and then what happened after. So we're going to pick up in verse 36 and read through the end of the chapter, and then I'll pray. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. This is a glorious beginning, Lord, of what brought us to here, where we are right now. We just thank you that today we gather in the train of history of all the people that you've called to yourself, in whom you have placed your Holy Spirit, and to whom you have made promises, glorious, great promises of the future that lies before us. And so thank you, Lord, for that. And we ask that you would help us to enter into what you have to teach us in this passage. We ask for the Holy Spirit to be active among us and impressing on us this part or that part according to each of us and the need that we have. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a song that came out in 2003 by Derek Webb titled The Church that has always moved me. Um, Derek was part of a Christian band called Cademan's Call. I don't know if they're still around anymore, but they started in the 90s. Um, so he came out of that band, and he had a solo project. And this song called The Church was on that solo project. And the lyrics describe the church from Jesus' point of view. And it opens this way. I have come with one purpose, to capture for myself a bride. By my life, she is lovely. By my death, she's justified. 
I have always been her husband, though many lovers she has known. So with water I will wash her, and by my word alone. And then here's the chorus, which is directed at Christians who would minimize the importance of the church. I haven't come for only you, but for my people to pursue. You cannot care for me with no regard for her. If you love me, you will love the church. That always gets me. <laughs> I'm sure because I'm called to be a pastor and that's what we, we have to do. Not have to, it's privilege. It's, it's on our heart. It's what, it's what makes you a pastor, that you have this love for the church. And I think those lyrics capture the heart of Jesus for his church because in Ephesians 5.25, Paul says, Husband, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. That's true. That's how much he loves the body of believers. It's ironic, then, that the author of that song has left the church and no longer identifies as a Christian. He belongs to a category of people known as ex-evangelicals. It's a word that's been coined. Uh, it's mostly younger adults who were raised in the Christian church but have left it for various reasons. They had a bad experience, or the church was too political, or its teachings are thought to be narrow and out of step with the popular consensus, things like that. And so they've separated themselves from the church. They want nothing to do with it, and in some cases have left the faith altogether. What I hope to do this morning <laughs> is show you from the scriptures why you should never do that. The church, whatever its flaws, is what the Lord is building. It's what he loves and what he will perfect in glory. And it's where he wants to do you and me much good. So let's begin with our passage. What we just read about is the birth of the New Testament church. The birth of the New Testament church. The setting is first century Jerusalem. It's jam-packed. The city's jam-packed with Jewish travelers from everywhere. They're there to celebrate the national Jewish festival called the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. It's been seven weeks since the Passover when Jesus was crucified there and then raised from the dead. The disciples of Jesus had been praying and waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit in their upper room. They're praying together, about 120 of them. And now the time has come. The Spirit is poured out upon them in power, accompanied by visible and audible signs. There's a mighty rushing wind. There are flames of fire that rest on each one of them. And so filled with the Spirit, they spill out into the street because they're in a house when all this is happening. They spill out into the street and, and they're speaking of the mighty deeds of God in, in all the languages of the people around them that have come from all these different places. God gives them this amazing gift all of a sudden. They're speaking in all these different languages. So this crowd gathers. What is all this? This is, this is strange. Crowd gathers. Peter preaches to them the gospel. 
And it ends with this declaration, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He lays the blame on the whole population that rejected God, that rejected the Messiah, and put him on a cross. And so, after that preaching, the Holy Spirit did this amazing work of conviction in the heart. And 3,000 people said, we're guilty. What must we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. And 3,000 were. That was a great day. <laughs> do you know what, though? It's a great day when you put your faith in Jesus. That's a great day. Jesus said, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Mass conversions aren't the only thing that bring joy to the Lord. Your conversion does. If you put your faith in Him, that brings Him great joy. But what happened next? What happened to these 3,000 new believers? Did they just disperse and go their own way? I mean, they were most of them, or a lot of them, were in town on vacation for this week-long holiday. Did they just kind of filter off back to wherever they came from and sort of go back to their old life, except now they had this amazing experience? Is that what happened? No. Verses 42 to 47 tell us what they did. And here's the important thing not to miss. They got together. They got together. Verse 44, all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. Verse 46, day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Their immediate impulse after having been saved by grace was to get together with all the other people that were saved by grace and figure out what do we do now? How do we walk out this life? What, there's much to learn, much to change. <laughs> They got together in the temple. They're going together to worship. They're getting together in the homes for, for extended fellowship and, and interaction. This wasn't just a once-in-a-while meeting. There's, there's this new life together that's being formed. The impulse was to form community. It's to form community. I need other people in my life. I need to walk this out with other people. I can't do this alone. I have to be with others. That's an impulse that I think we all have normally. Community is a basic desire that we have. And why do we have it? Well, it's because we're made in the image of God. God is triune. Forever He has enjoyed the communion the fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, joyful connection and interaction and, and knowing one another. There's one God in three persons, total mystery to us, but it's real. There's, there's a community there, and that's why we want that, because we're made in His image. And so we can't be fully fulfilled in His image without community. Every soul has this ingrained in them. Even the ex-evangelicals, I was reading one of the stories uh, of one woman who left, and she mourned the fact that when she left the church, she lost all her friends, she lost her community, and she had to start completely over again. 
And so she and others like her are finding community on social media, on podcasts, meetings once in a while with other ex-evangelicals because they want to share their stories. They want support. They want to feel like they're part of something. Why? Because we're made in God's image. If you reject it over here, you're going to look for it over there. Except that God wants you to look for it here. (laughs) And that's what I hope to make the case about. What we read about in Acts chapter 2 is the birth of a community that isn't formed just out of personal interests. It isn't just formed out of politics. It isn't even formed out of family or ethnicity or social status. Acts 2 is the birth of a community that is centered around Jesus Christ and Him crucified. By Acts chapter 5, the word church is being used to describe this gathering. A church is fundamentally an assembly of people, people who congregate, where we get the word congregation from. They meet together. A church isn't a building. It's the people. And what we see in Acts chapter 2 is the birth of a people who gather at the initiative of the Holy Spirit and in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what makes this the birth of the New Testament church. Now let's ask a question. Was this gathering of believers, this meeting together, just the result of euphoria over an amazing experience that they had? Was it something that doesn't necessarily need to be repeated? Or does it establish a pattern for my life as a believer in Jesus? Well, that's a question that many people have. And for many, they've decided the answer is no. Either by conviction, I don't need to be a part of the church. Or by default, I know I should be, but I just can't seem to get in the habit. Either way, there are many who profess faith in Christ but who are not plugged into a church. But God's Word tells us to think otherwise. The church is God's plan for His saved people, and it always has been. Or to say it another way, the Lord is building a church, not just saving individuals. That's what He's about. The Lord is building a church. He's not just saving individuals. And that's the next point. Let's just take a brief tour of the Scriptures to show that what happened in Acts 2 is the fruit of something God had been doing throughout history, namely gathering a people for Himself and to one another. So we can start with God's calling of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God made Abraham a promise, I will make of you a great nation. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I will make of you a great nation. This is a description of how God is going to work his saving activity on earth. He wasn't going to just give Abraham many descendants, though that was promised. But he was going to make him a nation. A nation is a group of people with a common identity. A nation is something you belong to. You're connected to others in it. Already the idea of community And connectedness is there. And out of that nation is going to come blessing to the world. We move on to Exodus 19, 3-6. This is uh, Israel in the wilderness. This is after being rescued out of Egypt before Mount Sinai. The Lord called to Moses out of the mountain. 
saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So now, we're, now we know who the nation is that God had in mind. This holy nation is this people that God brought out of Egypt before the mountain to whom he gave the law and the covenant and said, you are my people, you are my treasured possession. I enter into covenant with you. There are things I want you to do as a part of that covenant, but I've brought you out to be my people, my holy nation, my kingdom of priests. And it's Israel. It's the grandson of, of Abraham, Jacob named Israel, his 12 tribes that descended from him. That's this nation now that God says, you're mine. And they're called a congregation in Acts 7.38. Stephen is recounting Israel's history after leaving Egypt, and he calls them the congregation in the wilderness. Congregation is the same word translated church. In most of the New Testament, this was the church in the wilderness. This was God's assembly that he brought out of the world to himself under his word and his authority and said, you're my people. This is my church. This is my congregation. But as the story plays out, Israel broke the covenant. They worshiped other gods. They ended up in exile and dispersed. They gradually reassembled, but only as a pale reflection of what they once were, the community that God intended. And so then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus comes. And Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my congregation. From Jews and non-Jews, I will build my church gathered around the Son of Man dying for your sins. <laughs> and the gates of hell will not prevail against it because I will give you the Holy Spirit and I will tie you to myself. I will wed you to myself with this inseparable bond like vine and branches with this, this life that's going to flow from me to you. That's what's going to happen. I'm going to secure for myself this bride called the church. And so Acts 2 is just the inauguration of that promise. This first explosive growth of what we call now the universal church, which is all believers everywhere, past and present, the true assembly and congregation of God who puts their faith in Jesus. The people before Jesus' time, they had a forward-looking faith to a Messiah who was going to come. They didn't know who he was, but their faith was in God's promise, I will send you someone. And now since Jesus, we have a backward-looking faith. We're still looking to that same person, but now we know his name. And those who believe in Jesus to be that Savior are part of this congregation. This is the universal church. It crosses all around the world, all generations. It's people from the past, present, and future who are yet to believe in Jesus. 
And Acts 2 is just the, the spark, the, the, the new thing that happens, where now it's coming to fruition. What's been planned for, for millennia is coming to fruition now. It was all supposed to be in Jesus. And so there it is. And then you move forward to Revelation, and you see the end of the story. Revelation 7, 9, and 10. I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the church completed. That's the church in glory, gathered together with one voice, worshiping God, worshiping the Lamb who was slain. For our sins. You see, the church was God's plan all along. He never had a plan B. It was always this plan. He isn't just saving individuals. He is building his church. Now, in my experience as a pastor, I don't think the reality of the universal church is something that causes any serious pushback from Christians. We know we belong to that multitude from every language and nation that will worship the Lamb. But what does often receive pushback is commitment to a specific local church. I've known many professing Christians who believe that their membership in the universal church is the only membership that they need, that you don't have to actually assemble with and commit to Believers in a specific location. And that's totally not true. And not healthy for us. The reality is the local church is where God designed for us to experience and live out the reality of the universal church. That's where you know that this theoretical thing that you can't see is real because you're actually in one, <laughs> which, is from, which is an outcropping of this vast reservoir called the Universal Church. But it springs up in Aurora and Denver and around the world. I just want to show you that, that the church is to gather locally. Let's start with the Acts 2 passage. Once all these people were saved and they, they were baptized, they didn't just say, great, I'm saved now, I'm part of God's people. And then they dispersed. They actually got together. All who believed were together. They were attending the temple together. They were in each other's homes. They recognized that God's community can't be just a theoretical idea. It has to be lived out in real time with real people. There's so many scriptures that testify to the reality and necessity of lived-out community. Let's just look at a couple categories of scripture. First of all, you have the one another commands. There's like 30 of them. Live in harmony with one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Comfort one another. Love one another. Forgive one another, show hospitality to one another, and many more. You can't do any of those things by yourself. They require someone else. But someone could say, well, I do that with my friends. Okay, that's good. You should do that with your friends. 
But that's not the context for any of those commands I just read. The context for all of them is the gathered church in Rome, in Galatia, in Corinth, in Thessalonica, in Ephesus. These were churches where these commands were being given to one another. Real small groups of people in real places. And these were churches that had elders. Acts 14.23 says of Paul's missionary journeys that they appointed elders for them in every church. There had to be appointed leadership. There had to be pastoral leadership. Paul told Titus, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Again, elders. Paul gave Timothy requirements for elders and deacons, two church offices that he expected every church to have. The New Testament assumes a context of participation in a local church that has eldership. And then there's metaphors used to describe the local church and life in community. We are sheep who are part of a flock. Right? It's, they're, they're together. We know who's in it. We're stones in a temple, part of this worship community, this edifice, this temple, which is people who are worshiping their God, and we're like little bricks in it, but we're all joined together. We're members of a household, right? So in a household, there's a family. They're connected somehow. Again, there's continuity there. Parts of a body from 1 Corinthians 12. All these things, they, they talk about being in a connected community, identifiably joined together for worship, for service, for building each other up. You can't do that alone. You don't do that from home. That's why COVID restrictions made life so hard for us. We can endure separation for a time if we have to. We can bear meeting by Zoom for a while, but we can't do that forever. The life that Christ has for us. If we go back to last week, it's renouncing ungodliness and living godly lives in this present age. That life is meant to be done in a living, breathing community. Because even that instruction was to Titus to teach the churches. <laughs> That's where renouncing ungodliness and living a godly life is, is cultivated. It's where it happens. It's where we learn how to do it. It's where we're challenged. It's where we're encouraged. It's where we're comforted. All of that, you don't get that on Facebook. To not be in a church community, a local church, is like being the hot coal that spits out of the fire. Pretty soon by itself it stops glowing. And that's the Christian life without church community. The temptations and the ways of thinking of the world, they get into you. And they're going to lead you somewhere else besides godliness. <laughs> you need other people in your life. You need the community that God is building for your good. You need the church. Otherwise, you're just alone with yourself and with your unchallenged thoughts. And your only community is the community that you form for yourself, whether on social media or a network of friends. But the problem with the communities that we form for ourselves is that we aren't necessarily going to choose the people that are best for us. We choose the people who think exactly like us, who won't challenge us, who are in the same direction already, but God's building a church where there's people that challenge you. 
people you don't like, people who force you to react and evaluate your own heart. God chooses the best community for us. And it's hard sometimes, which is why there's commands like, forgive one another. Don't choose a community for yourself where you never have anything that you need forgiveness for, right? Like, we are always the same, 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 same. And everybody's just always, always for me. And there's never any kind of, you know, correction or, you know. No, that's not a community that God's forming. He's got a community where he's actually shaping us into the image of Christ. (laughs) And sometimes that's the person that's really annoying. But a real believer. (laughs) That said, we do have to acknowledge that a lot of people, even genuine Christians, have reasons they don't want to commit to a church. Because unfortunately, people do have really bad experiences. I know pastors who have had really bad experiences. (laughs) People have horror stories. They were treated in unchristian ways. They were slandered, falsely accused, betrayed, pressured to perform. Some people have been sexually abused in churches. So you don't run too quickly back to church when things like that happen. It feels safer to just stay away and listen to sermons online and join a social media group that prays for each other. And I get that. But if you've been burned, it's the fault of sinful people, not the fault of God's design. Joining a church that is shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer, not separation. So let's talk about what kind of church that is that's shaped by the gospel. Let's talk about a healthy church community. What is a church to do when it gathers? Verse 42 is a compact description of what the believers did when they met together. And let's read it again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So there's four elements there. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. At this time in in history, there's no New Testament. There's no Gospels. There's no authoritative record of the person and work of Jesus. But they did have the apostles who walked with Jesus for three years, who witnessed his resurrection, and to whom Jesus gave authority to teach on his behalf. They taught what Jesus taught them, and they interpreted the Old Testament in light of Jesus and his saving work. And if you look at Peter's messages in Acts, you see that's what they did. They preached the gospel, and they explained the scriptures. That's what a healthy church community looks like. It's where pastors preach the scriptures, they preach the whole counsel of God, every scripture being profitable for instruction, and all of that pointing to Jesus. (laughs) Even Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. He was talking about the Old Testament. So we look at the Old Testament in light of the New and see, oh my gosh, it was all moving towards Jesus. You want a church that does that. If that's not happening, you don't have a healthy church because Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's why pastors have to have the ability to teach. That's how you feed sheep. 
That's how the church is healthy. Without God's word, we're not healthy. But let me add this observation. A healthy church isn't just where there's good teaching, but where the members of the church are devoted to that teaching. That's the observation. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the word of God. The people in the seats, so to speak. One thing to go to church and hear a sermon, anybody can do that. It's another thing to be devoted to the teaching, to hear that teaching with openness to instruction and with a readiness to change or to do based on that teaching. A readiness for that in, to impact my life and change my life. And with the eagerness to hear it and to do, knowing that God's, God's word is good, God's word is my bread. Let me just tell you the best encouragement you can give one of your pastors after we preach. We like it if you say that was a good sermon. So don't stop doing that. Or maybe just start. I don't know. Depends on you. We like that. We'll take that all day long. But you know what would be super, super encouraging? Is if after a sermon, you say something like, I think I need to go apologize to somebody based on what I just heard. Or that gave me courage to face my fears. <laughs> That's when we know God's working. Here's the second element of a healthy church community. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Fellowship could be described as partnership created by a shared purpose or experience. It's partnership share, created by shared purpose or experience. Specifically for believers in Jesus, it's sharing our common experience of God's grace. The apostles' teaching is the gospel doctrine, and fellowship is the gospel culture that flows from it. It's, it's what we now do toward one another because we're all experiencing this grace of God. And where somebody's not, we move toward that. And I need that from you. And we're moving toward each other. It's the outworking of verses 44 to 46. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were praising God. That's all the, within this realm of the fellowship, this community that's doing life together. We're eating together. We're meeting each other's needs. We're encouraging one another. We're worshiping God together. And it's more than just talk. We, we tend to think of fellowship as that meeting that we have for 90 minutes that's on our schedule. You know, where we're going to open the Bible, we're going to read from it, we're going to talk about Bible things, and then we're going to close it and go home, right? And we think we had fellowship. And for sure, that's part of it. <laughs> that's an essential part of it, right? But that's not all that it is. It's the, the very word means partnership. It's participation. It includes the one another's and all the things we do to, to share God's grace. So it's meal trains for new moms, it's babysitting. It's sitting in a, by a hospital bed. It's, it's helping somebody find a job. It's checking in to see if they're doing okay. That, that there's participation. 
that's born out of our experience of God's grace. And so it's not just because we like each other, but I'm, I'm, I've been put together with you. I've been made a family member with you. That's why we call each other brother or sister. That's the practice of our fellowship. That's the gospel culture that flows out of gospel doctrine. And isn't it generous of God that he should want a community for that, uh, like that for us? That God would want to place us in this environment where people are for us and looking out for one another and we see needs and we move toward needs and we see somebody who's got something that I need, like their faith, I need to be helped by your faith. Isn't it generous of God that he would say, here you go, <laughs> I throw you into that environment. It's a safeguard for our faith. But it also provides connection to other people in a way that makes a difference in our life where we're, we tangibly know I'm not alone in this world. I am part of something God is doing that's bigger. That's what you find in a healthy church. Third element of the healthy church community is they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now that probably means, first of all, they did eat together as in hospitality. Verse 46 says, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, so they ate meals together. That's the part of fellowship that nobody has a problem with, I think, especially if somebody else is making the food and they're really good at it. Like, yeah, I'll be there. I don't care what else is going on, but like her casserole is like amazing. <laughs> Jesus modeled that. Look through the Gospels. How many times was he in somebody's house eating? Lots of times. Because it's a bond of friendship. It's a way of saying, hey, I'll sit with you for a few hours. Let's talk. Let's have an experience together here of something that we both need, food. That's, it's a beautiful thing to do that. That's why we, we added food to our discipleship groups, although that all went away kind of with COVID. But I hope we're, it's coming back. Okay, small group leaders. It's coming back. <laughs> food is one good thing. But hospitality is not all that's meant by the breaking of bread here. It also means they celebrated the Lord's Supper together. They celebrated what we call the sacrament of communion. Taking a bread and cup in memory of Jesus' death for our sins. There's two sacraments that Jesus commanded of the church. The first is baptism, which is what we saw as part of Peter's gospel preaching. Repent and be baptized. Baptism is that initial public display of faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to save you with the hope that I too, spiritually I've already died and, rose, and risen again, but also physically one day I'm going to rise with Jesus to new life. That's the faith that's demonstrated in that act of baptism. When you go down under the water and come back out, you only need to do that once. The other sacrament is the Lord's Supper or communion, and that's ongoing. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. That is, in remembrance of my broken body and my shed blood for your sins. Paul said, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He didn't say how often, but it's going to be often. It's going to be ongoing because we are always going to want this remembrance, this physical, tangible remembrance of Jesus' death on the cross for us. 
There's a lot more to say about the sacraments of baptism and communion, but let me just say this. Both of them celebrate the gospel. They both point to Jesus' death <laughs> and resurrection. The baptism is both. Communion specifically is death. But they both point to, where's my hope? It's in Jesus. Just that alone, the fact that the only two sacraments and rites that, the God, that God has given the church both point to the gospel, it should tell us that's really the main thing, isn't it? That's the one thing we better not lose is the gospel. So let's do stuff that keeps on showing it to us. And then there's preachers who are preaching it to us, and then we're helping one another see the reality of it. But let's make Jesus and the gospel the center of everything, and then you have a healthy church. And it's unhealthy to the degree that you move away from that. And probably a lot of the ex-evangelicals weren't in a church where that was genuinely happening. They may have been because the gospel is offensive. You can leave a perfectly good church and think that I had a terrible experience because of where your heart is at. Not because it was actually a bad church. It may have been a completely faithful church. But, unfortunately... There's a lot where the gospel has now been shifted away. Last one, last of the four elements. They devoted themselves to the prayers. That's a sign of a healthy church. I wish I had more time to talk about this. But here's something to notice. Prayer is something that the church was devoted to. They were devoted to prayer the way an athlete is committed to training. They were devoted to prayer the way an investor is committed to financial news. They thought it was really important for their life, something that was really worth their time. And so, friends, I can say on God's authority that prayer is really worth your time. God has brought us into a relationship with Him. He not only speaks to us, but He invites us to speak to Him. And He promises that He is listening, and He promises to answer according to His infinite wisdom and love. John said in his first letter, This is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Not everything we ask is according to his will. And he says no. <laughs> but those things that are according to his will, he is going to grant. And he does it as a result of prayer. There are things that don't happen because we don't pray. Do you believe that? God says it's true. But maybe our lack of believing that means it's like, oh, it's just a prayer meeting or, you know, it's that thing we do at the end of a discipleship group and we don't really think anything's going to happen. But God says, the requests that we have asked of him, we have them. They're according to his will. So let's get our hearts in line with his will. <laughs> let's get the mind of Christ. Let's, let's get rid of all of our foolish things that we ask him for and let's let's put ourselves in the train of what he's doing, and then we've got all sorts of confidence. I think God's going to come through because I'm praying according to promises. I'm praying, praying according to his revealed purposes. I think he's going to do something here. And so there's a new urgency. They were devoted. They, they thought they were enthusiastic about this. They were like, let's do more of this. 
We did that Friday night. By the way, Holy Fire, it's only once a month right now, but like it's sweet. It's sweet. It's the third Friday, and it's a sweet time together, and we pray for the church. We pray for our outreach. We pray for each other. So it's a place that we're trying to develop this and also open ourselves up to the prophetic words, gifts of the Spirit, training ground, if you will, <laughs> so that we can have you know, more of that, open that up to open ourselves up to the Lord. So I just want you to know, put that on your radar. A healthy church prays. Let me just close with this. We all need community. We're made in God's image, and the only way that can be fully realized is in partnership and participation with others, just as God enjoys relationship in the Trinity. This is what everybody's looking for. But the only community that will last, the only one that has potential for meeting the deepest desires of the heart is the one that Jesus is building. It's the church. Will any church, including this church, be all that God intended to be and be completely healthy? No. Because we are saved, but we still sin. In this life, nothing lives up to the ideal. And yet... For all its flaws, a church where people are devoted to God's word, where we're sharing the grace of God with each other, where we're celebrating the gospel, where we're calling on the Lord, that is a church where you can grow. That is a church that Jesus obtained with his own blood and that he calls his bride. Derek Webb was right in 2003. When he wrote on Jesus' behalf, you cannot care for me with no regard for her. If you love me, you will love the church. May God give us that, that love more and more. A love that presses in and remains and works through things and receives the goodness of what God intends by doing that. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're not going to sing right away, but I'm going to lead us through communion. So if you've got that cup and bread, if you're a believer in Jesus, this meal is for you to remember his broken body and his blood shed for your sins. If you can partake of that sincerely, if this is your confession, then we'll eat and drink together as we read from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, starting with the bread, and we'll take it together. Paul said, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Again, Paul said, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's do that together. Let me pray. Thank you for <clears throat> the church. Thank you for a body of believers to be part of. Thank you for forming it, obtaining it with your own blood. Thank you for sending your spirit to enliven our hearts and to give us a love for the things that you love. We need you for that. We thank you, Lord, that you are working among us and that you're building your church and we're a part of it. Help us this week to continue to press in, to do the one another's, to receive all the goodness that you intended through that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.